welcome. Uh, my name is G. Wesley. I'm going to quickly just um, uh, kind of set the stage for today um, before passing things over to Claude, who's going to um, introduce today's panelists. Um, so uh, the, today's first session is Beyond Cultural Polarities, Africa's Creative Repats. Um, and it's a panel that seeks to frame the concept of, Africa's repre of African repatriation through the insight of three entrepreneurs, um, including Andrew Desunmo, a filmmaker based in Nigeria, um, Nina Keta, an entrepreneur based in Cote d'Ivoire, um, Alenicia Moshe, a journalist based in Tanzania, and dis a discussion moderated by Claude Bruninski. Um, so just to introduce Claude before passing things over to him, um, so Claude is a lateral thinker and successful serial entrepreneur. Um, he's the founder of Trace, um, as well as the founder of True Africa, a media tech platform focused on championing young African youths. Um, raised in Lome, Togo, Washington, D.C., Paris, London, um, Claude speaks six languages and carries three passports. Um, his exposure to these cultures has helped influence um, not only his transcultural philosophy, but also um, inform his um, creative entrepreneurial ventures. Um, he's an innovation advisor to government heads and mentor to over 30 entrepreneur, entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs um, as, um, at some of the world's most admired companies. Um, and in addition to all of that, Claude is also an MIT Sloan Fellow. Um, so um, thank you, and I'll pass things over. Thank you so much. Um, uh, thank you so much for this great introduction. I'm really happy to see this crowd on a, on a Friday afternoon. It's really difficult for you to get away. And this space has such great energy, I really want to say, uh, between the Black Lives Matter, between Michaeline Thomas here, you know, the whole energy coming out of this uh, Red Hook neighborhood since yesterday has been amazing to me. So I'm really, really happy, and I want to thank you for taking the time to join us for this discussion. It's going to be about an hour, and then we're going to have a little session for Q&A. And what I really like about this smaller group is that we can really have a dialogue. You know, it's really conversational. I want about, you know, at least 30% of this uh, session to be you kind of questioning us. So I want to just start by saying how fortunate and, and excited I am to be with actually three close friends on, on the stage. It doesn't happen very often that you can actually uh, debate with people that you know very well and that you've known for a long time. So I want to start by introducing, normally it's ladies first, but I'll introduce Andrew because we're going to start with uh, a clip of his uh, 2013 film, Mother of George. Uh, Andrew Desonu is a, um, what I call a creative genius. He started, I met him many, many years ago when we were teenagers. And he has worked as a stylist, he's worked as a photographer, he's worked as a creative director, as a, a filmmaker, which is what he's known for now. And we're gonna start with a clip of his uh, 2013 film, Mother of George. And um, I also wanna introduce to my left here, uh, Nina Keita, who's also a friend. She is from Abidjan, but she is gonna talk about the, uh, the differences and some of the challenges that come with transitioning from life as a model in New York City to working in creative and government settings in Abidjan and how you're perceived as an outsider coming back into the country that you were born in and how sometimes you could be a foreigner in your own country. So I think it's gonna be a really interesting uh, dialogue here. And Elinicia Mosha, who was actually born in Addis Ababa but actually is Tanzanian, has worked um, in Europe, she's worked in America, her beat is not really journalism, even though she worked at the BBC, her beat is more of a, uh, producing films, which is what she does. And she's been doing this for a long time, and she's gonna share some of her experiences related to actually going back to Dar es Salaam to work uh, with the BBC, 
input on, on some film projects as well and how it feels to basically navigate these different worlds and move between these continents and still have your own voice in, in, in these creative industries. So without further ado, I want us to maybe take two minutes to look at the trailer for Mother of George, Andrew Dosuna's film, which came after his 2011 film, Restless City. So Mother of George is gonna play here. What's a day this is? To be blessed like this, after so many years. To you, dear Adenike, the woman of my life. This is to ensure fertility and prosperity. But you haven't. My son worked hard, and he will always provide for you. Why are you letting her ruin our lives? I'm not letting her do anything. This is our decision. You will not take another woman? I don't want another woman. Are you going to tell your mother that? start this um, dialogue with Mother of George is because it really frames this debate and it really speaks to a lot of the issues that we deal with um, as um, African immigrants here in the United States. I mean, I started as an immigrant, but I'm now an American citizen. Many of us have become citizens, but we're deeply rooted in our African identities. And this film deals with issues related to fertility, to infidelity, to migration, to basically adapting to a new homeland. And what was interesting, you saw the Nostrand Avenue sign in the beginning, and so you see that it's, it's also a Brooklyn story in many ways. It's a New York story, but it's a New York story that is, that is, that is uh, basically coming from the perspective of Africans who are looking for a new life, but who are still dealing with some of the issues. So the question to you, Andrew, is why did you decide to make a film like Mother of George as a Nigerian who's lived here for many, for many years? Why did you choose a Nigerian story that is kind of um, uh, embedded in, 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 in Brooklyn slash New York history? Um, good afternoon, everyone. Thanks for being here. Um, I guess for me, really, it's really, um, I really wanted to, to talk about the consequences of displacement. Um, what are all these things we go through? You know, the 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 the, the, dilemma, the dilemma of being away and all those 
things that people that migrate have to deal with, especially when you've left your home country and now you're in a new place? And what are all these dialogues that you have? Um, a is a woman like um, Adenike, which is a place by Denai Guerrera. Uh, she's caught up in a place where the lack of not being at home, the lack of being displaced, she could not communicate. So she's quite... Um, isolated in a way. So I, I really wanted to really just create that dialogue of what that is like. If that, this could have been in New York, I mean, this could have been anywhere else, it could have been in any metropolis, whether it's Brussels or Paris or London. Um, I really, for me, that's what, that was the beginning. I really wanted to create that dialogue, that conversation. But at the same time, um, when we're dealing with displacement, Many African immigrants who move to New York or Brussels or Paris, you know, they kind of coalesce around the communities, right? And so there's a Nigerian community here in New York. Um, a lot of the Ghanaians who come to New York, they go to a specific part of the Bronx, and it's all, that's been the story of migration. The Togolese, I know exactly where the Togolese live here, and because they always want to be together. So there is going to be a community that is welcoming them, welcoming them as they enter the country as immigrants or refugees, whatever may, the case may be. So I, I want to hear about the dif more, but more the difficulty in adapting to the new homeland. Um, now, for me, actually, what's really interesting to do this film is that I really wanted to kind of, after living in New York for like, well, probably 20 years, I really wanted to um, create, you know, the oasis. Everybody's got their own oasis in this metropolis, and I think they, as an, as, a, as, a, as an immigrant community, you, you tend to sort of go to where you know you can survive. You know there's people that, that are always going to support you. There's a welcome, there's a, a structure there. Um, and I, I, I always find it very fascinating. I remember, like, about a couple of years ago, how I often go to Midtown on 34th Street and seeing all these African women that they were actually creating some form of employment for themselves, whether it is creating meals and they have a basket and they go to the corner of 34th and 3rd Avenue and they sell lunch to all the African workers. Yes. And I thought that was so fascinating. Like, there's, and there's something quite, um, for me, quite intriguing about that, like the support factor of those communities. They knew they can create an employment for themselves. They knew they can find a way to, to subsidize themselves when they go into that community, if that helps. Right, it, it, it's, it does help. And I think it's interesting that um, the lead actor is Isaac de Boncole, who is a serial immigrant like us, right? Uh, from Cote d'Ivoire to Benin to Paris to here in New York, he's been living here also for close to 20 years. And he, this is a story that he can relate to as somebody who's had to constantly move around. But it's interesting that you would have somebody like Yaya, who is known as Yata Costa, as, who, who's actually a New Yorker, uh, born and raised, but who's always kind of claimed her African identity through her parents, right? As an African-American kind of looking at her African roots. And so how do you deal with the different perceptions of Africanness when you're trying to speak to an African audience and to an African-American audience and to a wider international audience? Uh, while casting this film, actually, I thought, uh, it was really interesting for me because I wanted to really break down the notion of borders in yes. Africa. And for example, if you do know Isaac, the bank holder, there's Isaac in this film, and there's Angelique Kijo, and Isaac is from Ivory Coast. Yes. And Angelique is from Benin Republic. And 
this story that takes place in, is supposed to be a Yoruba story. And I wanted to talk about how we go beyond borders. You know, there's your people that speak Yoruba in about four or five different countries between West Africa. And the notion of really breaking that down was, for me, quite intriguing in, in casting. And, and someone like Yaya that is an African-American, but she's so connected to, to the continent, traveling there and trying, you know, even picking up some language, I really wanted to kind of create a cast that that it's believable, and at the same time you you're not you're not quite going to question it because you know a lot of people do see I is kind of like oh I thought it was francophone I can't speak that language and it was one of those processes I was playing with as well like why do we especially living here and the notion of like oh you have to get certain actors to play certain things i remember i wanted to make this film for over a couple of years and i couldn't get it made because like the old question was oh can we get someone to play it someone like jamie fox or someone else and i'm like it doesn't really matter <laughs> I, I, I mean i think I, I do think that an actors can transcend but there has to be something quite authentic about them that right that makes one believe that they're actually from that place. And I think Yaya does carry that. Yes. And then I, I, I remember a conversation we had actually 10 years ago in Berlin during the World Cup and on one of the many projects that we worked on together, the Puma project. And you said, you know what? I really miss Nigeria right now. I have Nigeria in my bones. You know, I'm, I'm in Berlin. I've been in New York, but I really miss Nigeria. And over the years, you, even though you're very established here in New York City, you've kind of made concerted efforts to work on the continent. I remember the Izo Izo thing in, in, in South Africa, and then, um, you know, Restless City is obviously a Nigerian story, and you've been going back. So the main topic that we're debating here is how are you perceived when you go back to your native country when you've had this international career and you're different? Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's the, that's that's an interesting one. Um, you know, it's really for me as a filmmaker and as an artist. I mean, I I was just like I was born in England. You know, my parents were still in England. I was born in England when I was about three years old or four years old. I was shipped back to my grandmom, and my grandmom raised me till I was about probably thirteen, and then came back to England to finish high school. And it was really interesting because what really shapes me is Nigeria. My, my thoughts, what inspires me is that continent. And um, I remembered when I started wanting to, you know, after this conversation, after like I really wanted to do more stuff in Nigeria because for me, I, I was just quite inspired by that. And, Going back to your question of what is that like when you go back, and I mean, this is a big obstacle because number one, there's always a challenge about those that have been at home and feel like you think you're better. Yes. Um, and you have not been through, quote unquote, the struggle we went through while you were away. Yeah. So it's always that dilemma and, and, and how things work. You know, there's a, there's a different kind of conversation. There's a different kind of dialogue. It's not just about the work. You know, there's a lot of, um, you know, social elements that come into it. So it's really, um, how do you, for me, how do I make, I, I, how do I create partners? Yes. Uh, in a way where it doesn't feel, because I do understand the, 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 
our, the skepticism of how people feel because what often happens is, you know, you get the so-called returnees, you know, they go back and you think you're better or you, you know, there's always this, um, I guess this really fear of that by people that stayed behind. So I, for me, the, what, what I try to do is really create partners and find people like, this is beyond me personally. Right. For me as an artist, it's beyond me. It's about how can we um, contribute to this medium I'm in or contribute to this form we're in? How do we put our continent or our country there? So it's, it's really beyond me. So that's, that's where I start from. Um, it's really trying to have people that believe in you and, and them not feel, having the threat or feeling that there's, you have a different agenda. Right. Um, I, I want to stay with this issue of identity and geography a little bit longer. Um, the, in 1991, Salman Rushdie published a, a series of essays uh, titled Imaginary Homelands. And, you know, coming from India and being raised in the UK, he felt that, okay, there, you can be British, and, but there's always going to be a sense of being a, a, a stranger in, in that land. So do you feel, do you ever feel like you could be American in that sense? Uh, and, and just really kind of uh, rooted also in, in, in the new American tradition as this country is kind of evolving? Absolutely. You know, I think so. I mean, I've lived here for the last 20 years. I think I pretty much probably do know more about this country than most Americans, but native born. <laughs> born. Yes. And, and the beauty, you know, for me personally, especially living in America as well, is the fact that we all know that we did come from somewhere, unlike Europe, where there's a huge, you know, um, it feels different, you know, the, the, the notion that this is a country that is built. Right. Through people that migrated here, and, and, and that, and, I'm, and I think there's an inclusiveness living in America, which for me feels completely different from Europe, for example. Um, so I definitely do feel that, yes, I could definitely have a voice, and have, I could, um, I could be both. Why can't I be both? Exactly. You know, that's the question. I mean, for me, I never really questioned the notion of being both because it's just me. Um, yes. It's what is the others that question why can't you be both? For me, it's never a question. Right. So I want to I want to move to you, Nina, now because if we look at the big numbers, right? There's about 1.1 billion people living on the African continent right now. Of course, Nigeria being the biggest country, there's going to be about 180 to 200 million living in Nigeria alone, even though, as we know, it's one continent, 54 countries. And then there's another 140 million living in the diaspora, mainly Europe and, 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 and United States, Canada, and different parts of the world. However, what's happening um, as a kind of global megatrend over the last 10 years is there are a lot of Africans from the diaspora who choose to go back to live and work on the continent. And they take big chances, they take risks, sometimes they dislocate everything, take their family and move everything to be able to start a new life back home, whatever home actually does mean. And sometimes it's difficult adapting to new mentalities that are old mentalities, but you had kind of forgotten perhaps. So in your case, Nina, I found, you know, I've always been fascinated by your story since, you know, you were discovered as a, as a, as a teenager 
to become a model in France, and you've had this international career with CoverGirl and all these campaigns, and you've become successful, you moved to New York, and, and you had a very good career, but at one point, you decided to kind of go back home where you were born and start a new life in a new industry, but you always had been perceived as a model, which is what you were, were that was what you were doing, that was your profession. And so you changed careers, and you changed um, continents, and you moved back to Abidjan. And so I wanted you to share with us a little bit, uh, maybe a couple of anecdotes related to what it's like to move back home when you've had this very successful international career in New York. Uh, thank you, Claude, and thank you for having me. Good, good afternoon, everyone. Um, so I decided to move in 2014. I went to Abidjan because my family lives there, and I met the Minister of Budget. Uh, he proposed the job. He told me to be one of his advisors. So I said yes. I was uh, pretty exciting to change everything because I figured I couldn't stay, be a model for 10 more years, so I needed to have a career change. The first week I got there was very hard for me. Um, it was a shock. Um, I was coming from a world where it's, it's like glamorous and spontaneous and like fun and and I was getting into this very bureaucratic world and we have something called uh, meeting guides, which is meeting mania, where every, like you have meetings all the time when you want to have, to do something, you have to go through a whole process, like I don't know how many decisions, how many people have to, to approve the decision, or there's no, there's no sense of urgency, for example, I was working with someone and I told him, oh, um, could you please do something for me? He said, okay, I'll, you have it very soon. I'm like, how soon? He's like, no, very soon. I said, okay. So three hours later, I didn't <laughs> have my, my paper and I'm like, what are you doing? Oh no, I'm still working on it. I'm like, okay, fine. I just did it in 30 minutes myself. So it's been, it's been very hard for me. And another thing was, I was very, I was being judged of being incompetent just because I was, be, I, I used to be a model for 15 years. For them, I didn't know anything, I wasn't worth anything. Um, being a model home is not well perceived. Um, so I had a hard time, I had a lot of criticism and it was in the papers. Um, it, it was very hard for me. Do you I, think, do you think what, the, what you experience as a model, um, repat, yeah. we can extrapolate to other creative industries uh, for people who are working as visual artists, for people who are working as filmmakers? It uh, depends, it depends. If you stay in the industry, then it's different. But for me, I, want, I did like a 180. I went from being a model to work in the government. Right. So it's like no one was taking me seriously. I had to work very hard, and they still was, they were always judging what I was doing as if it wasn't good. Um, I, think, I think it's only if you change industries. Uh, but once you stay, for example, if Andrew was going to Abidjan, he would be adult, idolized, I, I think. Um, but you just have to stay in your lane. People are really 
not open-minded, it's very close-minded. That's how I but know there is, experience. But there is also a perception that whatever is coming from New York, or whatever is coming from London, whatever is coming from Paris is better than what is actually homegrown in Abidjan, right? Yes. This is yeah, no, definitely. So if, like, I think there were also, that there were a lot of um, feelings involved. Uh, mm -hmm. For them, it was too easy. Oh, here, like, she thinks she's better than us, but she's not. Uh, she's coming in an environment that she absolutely doesn't know. So we ha we'll prove, like, we'll have to show her, we'll, we have to make her life miserable. That's what it was for me. Right. Because they, there's a perception, as Andrew said before, that, okay, because you're coming in from New York, yes. you know how to do things, you think you know and I think that I know. you're better than us. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So um, other people who do, you might have met who work in the creative industries, whether it's music or film or fashion, yes. uh, say in Abidjan, what, what, what experiences uh, have they had that you've seen? They actually love it. I have, I know a girl uh, who used to be in New York too. Her name is Loza Maleombo. She's yes. a designer. Yes. And she's been very successful in Abidjan. She's, um, she's done very well and people really love her, but they, they, they respect what she's been doing but she's also promoting the African, the Ivorian and African uh, uh, culture, so. Right, mm -hmm. so I guess what you're saying is if you stay within a specific industry, you stay within your lane, yes. then it's easier, the adaptation period. It's easier. And, it is, and the transition might be a little bit easier. Yes. And I yeah. guess also for me it was, I, I guess they don't have that much respect for mothers. Mm -hmm. and that, I think that's a really big um, problem. Why do you think they don't respect models? What they, they just, well, home, uh, usually girls go into modeling to have like people taking care of them. Mm -hmm. um, and they're usually not educated. Mm -hmm. So I guess they just, they just transpose that to me. Yes. I think that's what happened. Okay. Yes. Um, I, I had a, a couple more questions related to, you know, the whole issue of family, right? Yes. Because, again, and I experienced this with my, all my cousins and so on, if you're 30 and you're not married and you're kind of living in the metropolis, then there's a problem somewhere, it's right? It's a big problem. Right? It's a big pro It was a huge problem for me. So, uh, well, this is, this is a little embarrassing, actually. Yeah. But I got in Abidjan, and um, so it's very, like, it's mademoiselle and, and madame. In government, they call you madame even if you're not married. Um, so I got there, and Everyone was judging me because I wasn't married. It's like, you have a problem because you're more than 30 and you're still not married. And, and I had problems with men and women because right. all the women were really scared uh, with their husband. And the, yeah, yeah, they all thought that, you know, they're like, oh no, you don't, like, don't go close. So yeah. I had, like, I was treated, <laughs> no, I was treated so bad. So at one point, like three months after, I went, I went to a jewelry store with my mom and I'm like, mom, you know what? I think I have to have a fiance now <laughs> because uh, this is not working. Yeah. And my mom is like, okay, so we bought this. I still have it, <laughs> even if I came back. And we bought this, and I had to say that, no, I'm engaged. I have someone. Right. Because it was, I was treated like, it was really bad how I was treated. And then, and then now that you're, 
back here doing your MBA at Columbia University and thinking of going back to Abidjan as an entrepreneur. Yes. Uh, how, how do you feel about you know, uh, New York versus Abidjan? Um, ideally, I would want to be to go to be by coastal, uh, by by continental, by continental, yeah. Yeah, it's a different by coastal. Yeah, I would like to be six months in New York, six months in Abidjan. When uh, when I first got here, I I felt like I was breathing again. Right. That's how I, I really wasn't feeling good when I was. I, I had a hard time adapting, readapting to Abidjan, even though I lived there until seven, when I was seven. And your parents lived there, and your but whole family is from the there. The whole you were born there. there. I yeah. was born there, grew up there, have friends there. Right. But it was, I, it was very like it was a cultural shock for me. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm, I got here and I'm like, well, I was supposed to stay until 2017. But I think I'll stay longer. Mm -hmm. And do the six month, six month thing. Yeah. Yeah. Andrew, how, how often do you go back to Nigeria now? Oh, me? Um, every other month, if oh, you can. Okay. <laughs> so you're doing that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm on the African continent every single month as well. So it's, you know. Linesha, I, I, I want to talk to you about, you know, you have a very interesting background. You were born, as I said, in, Dar es Salaam, in, in, in Addis Ababa. Your family's from Tanzania. Uh, and you, at one point, you left New York uh, to go back to um, Dar es Salaam to work uh, on various projects, including BBC. And again, it was a bit of a culture shock, like Nina said. So can you tell us a little bit more about how you felt going back, having lived and worked in London and New York City in the film industry? Yeah, I mean, it was for me, it was, um, it was not a decision actually um, born out of, let's say, any kind of patriotic sense. Um, what led me back home was much more personal um, and, in a way, professional. As you said, the BBC is what brought me back to Tanzania. So I was a UN brat um, and never lived in Africa my entire life until I started working there. So when I was, I don't know, uh, about like 34, I moved back and yeah, um, it was, kind of strange because my entire life like I thought of myself as like experiencing feelings about like going home that was all my parents ever talked about was like you need to come back home you need to pay your patriotic duty to basically like this concept that like in Tanzania, you felt all the time that Nyerere was like a huge, huge, huge part of like our mental construct. So, I mean, as in Julius like, Nyerere, the father of the Tanzanian nation, exactly, quote unquote. Yeah. Um, and so we were we were taught that we had to come back and pay our dues. 
And, and so even though you lived in 14 different countries as a UN brat, it was still about you have to, you have to pay your back. dues. And, and how do you pay your dues specifically? So basically it was like you had three options. Like you either were a doctor, a lawyer, or an accountant. Right. Okay. <laughs> okay. So the whole option of creative industries was not an option at all. Right. Um, and so it was like about contributing to society um, and about raising up your family and your, your tribe. Um, and we come from a really big tribe in northern Kilimanjaro. Um, and that was like a real thing for us. It was like you had to basically promote your people. Um, and what was really important for us was this notion of, of socialism. Right. Um, and I don't think that that's, I, I mean, you know, from an East African context, like, that was really important for us because Tanzania was one of the most socialist countries in Africa, we essentially, like, looked at ourselves as, like, this, like, model of community. Um, we, we, took, we took on this, like, kind of libertarian context. Um, and that was really, really important to us. Like, I remember summers of spending our time in Nyerere's farm in southeast um, Tanzania. And that was really, really important. Um, but what about the people in Kilimanjaro? Did you that, that were part of your tribe and your crew, your family crew, extended crew? Did you feel any sort of kinship to them? Did you feel when you went back? Did you feel uh, that you were related to them? Did you feel that you were simpatico? Did did you? Yeah, I mean, I think you know one of the things is that like Tanzania is not like other African countries in in the sense that we don't have the same kind of tribal context. Um, How is it different? Um. We're much more like, like I feel more Chaga than I do feel Tanzanian. Right. So there's not that kind of like nationalistic like context. Like we feel really, really related to our tribal Neighbors. More so than the nation state. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to stop you there for a second. I want to come back to that. Do you feel like more Yoruba than Nigerian? Or do you know people who feel more Igbo than Nigerian? Or, um... Um, oh boy. Uh, <laughs> Nigeria, I mean, uh, for me, I feel Nigerian. First of all, I mean, of course, I'm, a Yor I'm Yoruba, but yeah. there's something that uniquely kind of when in Niger that connects us as Nigerians, you know, the, the fact that, you know, um, 
Yes, the Yorubas, you know, we, there's a, we've got a, you know, a thousand years or two thousand years of uh, specificity, whether it's through our deities and the connection to our deities and all that. But I think there's something that the breaking down, the creation of Nigeria, which is what, 55 years now, there's something that we, the continent, that the country has been able to connect to create all, all the all the tribes, and I think maybe that's got to do with because of the civil war, you know. Because I remember growing up, it was really interesting because after the war, um, the Biafra War, Nigeria um, government created something where every secondary school student never went to school in their district or in their section. So if I'm Yoruba, I had to go to school in the north, in the Hausa land. Yeah, and if you were Igbo, mm -hmm. because they really wanted every other Nigerians to be able to speak the language of a couple of other tribes. So you never really went to school in your own land. You all had to go to school somewhere else. So I think, and that was created because after the war, they really wanted to unify the country. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that is very prominent. I mean, that's, you know, the fact that, you know, we all have uh, a connecting we've created a different language in a way, you know, whether it's our broken English or, you know, we've created something that made us Nigerian. And yeah, the specific Nigerian English that, yeah. 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 Well, that is, that is really interesting because um, in Tanzania, like, we have 126 languages, um, but everyone speaks Swahili. Um, and I think that when you're talking about, like, culture, that the, the, the language issue is definitely a part of it because how do you unify people and how do you unify culture if you don't have this commonality of language? Um, and that was like one of the things that I think Nyerere definitely made a priority was like we didn't have the same kind of like tension that a lot of our African neighbors had um, because of language, because of unified language. Well, I mean, Swahili is a very powerful, you know, kind of transborder language. You know, it's, it's, it defines in a way the e certain East African identities, right? But when you were talking about feeling more Chaga than Tanzanian, uh, I really want to understand that because it's, it's, a, it's a strong statement because it's that, that means that you're directly identifying with a very specific tribe in a very specific part of, of Tanzania, even though you're a, a world citizen, in a sense. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, this is the kind of stuff that I, I spend a lot of time thinking well, about. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a question of when, when you talk about home, mm -hmm. that's probably the only place that I feel like is home. And so New York is not home? No. And, and, and why not? <laughs> New York is where I live. Right. Okay. Okay. <laughs> New York is where I live. I mean, home is, you know, I, I, I think of this Jamaica Kincaid story, um, a small place. Mm -hmm. And she says, home can never really exist because once you leave it, it ceases to exist. Um, and I think that's true. To me, the only place that feels like home is where my roots are. 
Um, but, and that's and that's just like an intrinsic, like instinctual thing. It, um, it really doesn't come to the level of like um, trying to quantify it or anything like that. Um, and I don't know. I think that as creatives, like we're always trying to navigate that. Let we're me, always trying to figure that out. One of the, the, probably one of the first questions I ask every person I interview for my books or my publications, online, whatever, is always where you're from. And when you're dealing with Africans, it can become very, very complicated, <laughs> right? So when someone asks you where, where you're from, what, do you, what is your answer? I say that I'm born in Ethiopia. I'm from Marangu. And people usually don't know where that is, right? And so yeah. then what, what, you know, what do you say after that? I live in New York, or I live in London. Okay. I mean, the thing is, is that it's not so simple. I, I don't try and, like, make it easy for people. Right. I mean... I do, because I always say I'm from Togo, West Africa, because 99% of the people I've met in America have never heard of Togo, right? You come from a country that no one's heard of. Yeah. So I always make it easy. <laughs> it's like me, when I say I'm from the Ivory Coast, that, oh my God, what a beautiful island. <laughs> no. Do you know what people tell me? Do you know what people tell me? I tell them I'm from Tanzania, and they're like, oh, Tasmania. That's amazing. <laughs> but the thing is, is that I really, I don't think that you have to make it simple for people. Like, no. I think that people have to struggle with it a little bit. I mean, uh, it's so funny. <laughs> yeah, it's really funny because I'm, I'm in contrast to that when people ask me or ask people where you're from. I mean, for me, it's, and I don't even think anything else. I'm Nigerian because that's what shapes me. That's yeah. what I'm about. That's yeah. what, um, even though I might have lived more times out of Nigeria, but that's the language I speak. That's places where I can go into the bush and, and I can survive because there's my kingsmen and there's tribal men that I can communicate with. And there's an easiness that makes it home. Mm -hmm. um, but when people do ask, the, coming back to that question about where you're from, it's really interesting because for me, I, I always... And this is something else. I always felt like, especially when I... When I being with friends in England or being with friends in, in France, where they're like second generation English. I mean, this are like, okay, maybe their grandparents came from Ghana, you know? Mm -hmm. But once people ask them where they're from, really, and they say, I'm from South London, yeah. that's not the question. Yeah. They really wanted to know where your people are from. Right. And for me, that's become so complex because I felt like what else was... And the next thing that comes is like, but where are your people from? And I'm like, why is that, why is that a question? So mm -hmm. I always tell my friends then, I mean, at, at that early stage, that instead of actually having to answer them, why don't you just define yourself as where you're from, meaning you know what they want to know, and just take them straight there, mm -hmm. you know? Um, which, it's a bit different in America, I guess, in that sense. You yes. know, people don't really often... They don't, they're, they're like, I'm American. about where you're from. I'm American. You know? Did you? No. I mean, I, I wanted, you know, it's, I'm glad you mentioned the Biafra War and the fact that the government found a way to unite Nigerians around this kind of national identity. You know, and I know that President Kagame in Rwanda 
said, you're not supposed to ever say whether you're Utu or Tutsi. He just does not want people to even talk about their, you know, their ethnic background just because of the genocide and everything that it created as trauma for the nation, right? And if we go to, say, Cote d'Ivoire, for instance, you know, there was so much talk around Ivoirite and who's really Ivorian, and if the president, is he really from Cote d'Ivoire, or did he really study with a scholarship from Burkina Faso, which was then called Upper Volta? You know, and these topics dominated the conversation in West Africa for years, you know, and then so, like, when you say I'm from Cote d'Ivoire, and you look at the fact that a lot of the people who are from Cote d'Ivoire or running Cote d'Ivoire are not even from Cote d'Ivoire, right? And Cote d'Ivoire versus Guinea versus Burkina Faso versus Ghana, you know, there were never really any sort of delineations like that no. until colonial rule. So then now, in your own identity as an Ivorian, as an international cosmopolitan transcultural Ivorian, do you spend time thinking about your ethnic Identity. Oh, yeah, because I'm Jula. So Jula is very similar to people from Mali. You have, um, like, people from Mali, Guinea, um, and even Ghana, you find some, you find some Jula. No, I'm, I, I consider myself Jula, and my <laughs> father is actually from Mali. Like, Keita is really a Malian name. So my father's Father, my grandfather was Malian, my grandmother was Malian, and they moved to Abidjan. Um, so Cote d'Ivoire is really a mix of, like a lot of people from Cote d'Ivoire coming from Ghana. Right. You know, all the accounts are coming from Ghana. So we, it's a mix of different cultures. It's just like some people came and they just made some limitations to the country. That's what happened. But yeah, I, I'll consider myself Jula. Right, so that, and that's important for you. It's very important. Why, why is a, it important? It's, it's a, it's a, it's a total culture. It's so different from all other, all over, all, all other cultures. You is know, that your have, tribe? Yeah, but we call, we don't call that tribe actually. Yeah, they don't like that no, word. No, no, we don't like that word. <laughs> no, we don't. Like this is a French part. We don't like, okay. we like tribe is no. We call it um, ethnicity. Yeah, ethnic. Uh, my ethnic group. Okay. Yeah. Why is that? Why is that different? <laughs> it's another level of okay. conversation. But um, tribe, it's more like we view it more as um, because of the colonialism. We view it more as um, pejorative, like negative word. Than yes, for us it's very negative when you say tribe. Uh, okay. You're coming from a tribe. It's like you're coming from I don't know. We just don't like it. Okay. Yeah. And people in our countries talk about this all the time. And this yeah. is at the root of many of the civil wars that we've had. Yes. You know, this whole kind of ethnic slash yeah. tribal yes. rivalry, right? Yeah. Which is the, the, you know, obviously the, the struggle for power, right? Yeah. And so a lot of people who actually are in office, they maintain that power by you know, ruling with their tribe. And we've seen this time and time again. No, it's really interesting for me because for us, like in East Africa, like tribe is a source of pride. No, it's still a source of pride. Like when but we say ethnic group, for example, in Togo, do you say tribe? Uh, no, we no. don't. No. In West Africa, we just don't say tribe. Okay. It's like we just use ethnic group. It's different. 
but we still identify. It's the same thing. Mm -hmm. We just don't use that word, but it's a, right. exactly the same thing. Yeah, and, and also if you look at the fact that it's a Yoruba or Jula, it spans like four different countries, right? Yeah. So yeah. you know, from as you said, from Mali to Guinea, yeah. all the way to Senegal. Yeah. Sometimes, you yes. know, So it's it's something we have to be very careful with the terminology of how we define these identities, yeah. you know. And so that's why I'm always talking about the African identity. Mm -hmm. But people are like, what do you, what does that really mean? You know, there's so many different tribal identities within Africa that it's difficult to actually find some sort of real common ground. Mm -hmm. And that's why these sort of debates are really important. Yeah, but at the same time, I always look at it like this. I mean, we coexisted for centuries. Yeah. Right. And um, we coexisted for centuries. The, the partition of Africa, which is, you know, what, 1919 or the 1800s, late 1800s, made those things more obvious. Right. And when the colonial power structure came in, favored a less favored a particular sec section of people or tribe, whatever you're gonna call it. But for me, I, I, you know, it's really like what made Nigeria rich, why Nigeria is what it is, is the coexistence of all these cultures. Mm -hmm. It's that's what makes us powerful. And I think we as Africans have to embrace that because I always look at Kofi Annan, one of the greatest things that Kofi Annan said was like, you know, the notion of we think in Africa, we are used to it for 50 years, and we are actually trying to get a sense of that. Um, which, you know, half of the continents in the world couldn't, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, look at Russia, you know, they, they splashed into pieces, you know? We, and I think it's high time we actually start giving ourselves credit for being exist. You know, we do have wars, but compared to other parts of the world, you know, Africa just happened to be a poster child for war problems, you know? Everybody yeah. experiences it, but Africa is gonna be the poster child, you know? So we have actually, we need to celebrate that, that we, there is worse, but we've been able to coexist between a nation because that's what we've known for 50 years and mm -hmm. how do we make it better? And I think that's why, you know, for me, for example, you know, I cannot, my living in Lagos or living in Nigeria, it's, what drove me back to Lagos is the same thing that brought me to New York, was the inspiration, was the drive, was the fact that things are happening. And I think, Lagos gives me that. It gives me what I thought about of New York in the early eight, in the late eighties or nineties, where artists get together. People are driven by what's exist, what's, what's the excitement that exists. Um, but, yeah. but I guess your bias, and I, sometimes I'll, I'll be honest. Sometimes I get frustrated because so often the African conversations and end up being about Nigerian conversations. You know, because Nigeria is such a dominant. You know, it's like. It always goes back to Nigeria and Lagos somehow, even though we have 54 countries, you know? And but some of us feel, you know what? Do you guys have a superiority complex, you know? <laughs> no, I, no, I look at Nigeria as like I look at New York. We all came to, we're all in New York for one reason, because New York is where we are able to, um, you know, express ourselves. And I think- and Make things happen. Yeah, and I think Nigeria, the reason why Nigeria is in the conversation, actually, I think we have to look at it for me, it's like Nigeria in the 70s, at the beginning, at the end of the, the oil boom, everybody migrated to Nigeria, you right. know? So actually, you know, I could be Nigerian, but who knows if my parents were migrated from Ivory Coast because everybody came there. That was the city of gold. That was the city of oil. So I think that's why the conversation is that it just happened to be a capital when you think about American so entertainment. You, you talk about New why York. Why did you mm -hmm. leave? I, 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 I left because I actually, you know, why did I leave? It was not my choice. It was my, because, you know, I remembered my dad saying to me, 
saying to us, actually, when we when he was, when was sending me to college, it was like, you are going to be the last generation of our kids that goes to college abroad because we were having these great universities, mm-hmm. you know, whether the Obafemi Awolowo or the Ife, University of Ife. Mm-hmm. Um, and I went away to go to school. And before I came back, there was the coup. And the military coup came in, and people went certain, and then another military coup. And there was this, this pattern of coups that happened in the mid-'80s to the late-'90s in Africa, where people went sure stability. That's really, you know, my living in Nigeria is not because of Nigeria. It's because I'm a victim of bad leadership that I've had, you know? <laughs> it's the bad leadership that's kept me away. But my country and my people inspire me so much, you know? When I think about anything, you know? Um, you know, whatever inspires me, you know, that's what inspires me the most. That's, I'm driven by that, like, you know? And like what you said earlier about sense of home, you know, sense of belonging somewhere, um, you know? sense of I can explain myself to somebody if I'm in a jam, you know, if, yeah. if I don't, you know what I'm saying? All those things that, 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 that's more human, that it's not a structure, that I feel like, okay, yeah, in America, not, you know, there's certain things. It's, it's uh, you know, I can't even explain it if I don't know if you get what I'm saying. No, no, it's, it's uh, I get it. I, I wanted to, I wanted to ask you, I mean, the whole, I mean, Chimamanda has become so big now, and everybody loved her book, Americana, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, Ifimilu, people kind of relate to the fact that she's trying to come back to Nigeria and work in the publishing industry, and, and it's difficult. So we know about these challenges uh, related to going back home, right? Yeah. What, uh, working in the film industry, the way you've been working in the film industry, what kind of narratives do you think we need now to be able to tell a different kind of African story? Because there's, you know, My African City is coming out of Ghana, people love that show, uh, and there people are producing more and more content related to the new African experience. What do, what do you think should be done now? Because we have a room with people who are decision makers, who are thinkers. Yeah, I, th- I think, um, first of all, <laughs> the conversation I have with a lot of my colleagues is that It's not so much about having an African narrative as much as having like a narrative that's universal and also like just local. Um, you can set a story anywhere in Nigeria, in Tanzania, in Brooklyn. Like Brooklyn, the, yeah. exactly. And those are the kinds of stories that resonate with people. I think the minute that you start to say that, okay, this is an African, an African story or this is an American story or whatever, um, you've already put yourself in a niche um, that becomes very difficult to market and fund. I mean... Andrew, you've just completed another film. I don't know if I can talk about it uh, with Michelle Pfeiffer. Um, and you've worked with, uh, I think, Kiefer Sutherland, some really big uh, white American actors who have absolutely no connection or relationship to Africa. So uh, do you sometimes feel pigeonholed as an African director or, or Nigerian-American director? Or 
or do you feel like these universal stories that Elinisha is talking about is what you might want to aspire to outside of even any affiliation with the continent? Yeah, um, yes, of course I get pigeonholed, but I only get pigeonholed in this society. You know, right. I'm not pigeonholed in another society. I can't be pigeonholed in Africa, you know? So I only get pigeonholed in this society, and I don't think, and I'm get pigeonholed because I'm African, because I'm someone of African descent, period, you know? Because I don't think you really pigeonhole Steven Spielberg, you know? You don't say Steven Spielberg is this kind of director, he's just, you know? No one director. asks him if he wants to make white American <laughs> films. Exactly. Mm -hmm. so exa no, that's, yeah. a, that's an interesting question. So, mm -hmm. so for me, you know, I'm only, you know what I'm saying? So. In that sense, I'm pigeonholed. But for me, I try to, I think, of course, there's a human story, you know, and, and, and something you, or you hope, whatever story it is, your hope is universal. But I like to believe that there has to be, there's something, there has to be an African story that has not, actually, the world is not even began to see it yet. Right. Because, you know, we've got thousands, you know, centuries of stories. You know, I love, you know what I'm saying, that the, the things that, I mean, even talking about literature, the great African literature that's never even been tapped into to make films out of, whether it's Tutuolas or, you know, or, 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 or Ayakwala, you know, all those great writers yes. that came from African writer series that the world has not even been able to, you know, that it's, it's actually, for me, it's a gift to the world. It's, 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 a, it, we can, it's an experience we can all, um, or something we can all, it's a gift to us, to the world. So I really think that um, there could be an African story, but it doesn't have to be pigeonholed as an African story. It came from Africa, but it's a universal story. You know, I mean, half of this, whether it's uh, Pan Libertad or, or Chronicle of Navia, I mean, African writers have been writing that, writing that story for for decades. Yeah, but people people don't people don't know that. And I think people should know that. Lanisha, you wanted to add because I wanted to. You wanted to add to that? No, I, 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 I just was. I agree with. I agree with Andrew. I mean, I think that the second that you start to say that we have to have this specific kind of context for for creativity in terms of like expressing certain narratives. Um, then you're already saying that there's like a sort of inferiority in our stories. Right. But and I mean, it, but, it, but if we're going to have, but let's look at an analogy with this space we're in now, right? We're in Pioneer Works in Brooklyn, and, and Dustin Yellen created this incredible space. But I, one of the reasons I respect Toria and her team so much is because she, starting in London, said, we need a space where we can show African art from the continent. You know, and this is it. It's not like we're going to show everything, like freeze or whatever. We're going to specifically focus on um, maybe tapping into an underserved market. And, and with that in mind, it becomes an artistic project that resonates. So is this something that we should be thinking about in the film world as well, saying, you know what, we need to approach certain things from that context? I mean, absolutely. I think, I think that's, for me, I mean, let's take... Sorry, I don't want to shift this conversation, but let's take you, for example, you know? There was a time when we were growing up, I knew as a teenager, where there was hardly any magazine that features black women or, or black YouTube culture. And you created this magazine that became really a pamphlet, a model for 
all the magazines we know today, you know, all the contemporary magazines from the nylon to the, you know, because you had a magazine that was artistically, that, 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 that was pop, that had, that embodied all of these things. And I think, and you made people wanted to, I remember looking at Trace and it was like great stories, great photography. Everybody wanted to shoot for it, you know, whether you, any photographer wanted to be able to depict, you know, photograph for that magazine. I think that's what we have to do. I think it's about really taking ownership like this. I mean, who would think this will exist five years ago, you know? Here we are in this space and, and people are curious and people are, you know, talk about this. And I think that's what we need to do is really getting the bull by his own and, and create hours and just do the work. I've always believed in doing the work because I believe that once you do the work, eventually people will say. Thank you so much for this, this ultimate compliment. You know how much that means to me. I wanted to, before I open it to the public, I wanted to ask you, Nina, who was a, a, a face of Trace many times, uh, when you look at your life post-modeling, post-Abidjan experience, what do you see like in the future and how do you want to represent a certain modernity in Africa, or, or do you maybe think that perhaps Africa is not even in your future oh, from a business perspective? No, no, no. I'm definitely going back to Africa. There's a lot to do. It's like a continent that has so much potential. Um, we have a lot of treasure, and people don't know it yet. So it's really the youth that has to, like all the people that went out of Africa, ha they all have to go back and create something good for the continent. I'm definitely going back. I said I'm going to be bicontinental for a while, but eventually I want to move back. And hopefully, well, I have big dreams for myself and for my country. Okay, so yes. hopefully you'll share them with us later. It's a great segue <laughs> into the Q&A. We have, um, I think, only about 20 minutes left for the Q&A section. Um, I wanted to um, see if there's any mics in the audience. A bit, less. a bit less. How many minutes we have left? 10, maybe? Okay, so maybe we can take maybe three questions from the audience. I see one already there on the fifth row. Uh, please introduce yourself and tell us who you want to ask that question to. Members of the diaspora returning 
Well, give us an example of, of what you think could be done, because I, I, I like where you're going with this. Right. I mean, I, I, I want to maybe just answer that quickly, and I, um, you may have some opinions as well. For instance, on the film front, one thing I've noticed is my, my, my stepmother, and I know that your mother as well, Alicia, all she watches all day long is Nollywood movies. Yeah. That's all she does. And she's living in Silver Spring, Maryland, and, you know, that's all she does. Because it's a way to connect with home, but it, she's not even Nigerian, she's Togolese. Yeah. But you know, it's like, these, not, these narratives, we know it's like there's always gonna be some sort of conflict, some sort of betrayal, and you know, or some sort of resolution towards the end that is kind of maybe managed and mitigated by the family, right? The broader family. And it's always the same story, but a lot of people relate to these stories because they're very, very simple narratives. Mm -hmm. Are you saying that we should do something a little bit more uh, ambitious from, from an artistic perspective? Is that, is that what you're saying? Right. Okay. Okay. And I think that's where media platforms come come in. And I think the next panel is gonna is gonna is gonna be interesting for that as well. Did you have anything to add before we move to the second? Yeah. I mean, question? I like it. It's interesting when you talked about the Nollywood thing. You know, I was just in Ecuador a couple of weeks ago, a week ago, and I don't speak Spanish, uh, but I wanted to go to Ecuador anyway. And it, and and it was really interesting because I went to a village and and the guy said to me, "Where are you from?" And I'm like, "I'm Nigerian." And the, and I was so shocked because he named all these five Nollywood stars. <laughs> and it's like, this is what, you know, that's all Nollywood was our communication, you know? But for me, what was interesting about that conversation is that Nollywood proved, and you know, an African cinema proved that there's a lot, there's more complexity to us of African, or to us as people of African descent, because for, cent for, for decades or even centuries, all we've ever known about ourselves is depicted through Hollywood. Mm -hmm. And that has never been nice. I mean, from the, from the inception of cinema, it's about using it to depict us wrongly, you know, from birth of a nation to, yeah. you know? So for me, I think that's the conversation already started. The fact that someone over there sees a different them. Yeah. And can relate I, to it. I think, I think um, going beyond even narrative, um, the conversation we need to be having is about marketing and distribution. Because one of the things that I see lacking in African cinema is the fact that we don't even watch the films that we produce. A lot of the films that we make aren't even distributed to our audiences. Um, and so if we're going to have a conversation about narrative, it really needs to come from the business end. And if that's the space that we need to create, then I think that's where we need to go. 
Right, and we're video on demand now. There's uh, opportunities and so on. Maybe we have time for one more question because I know that our 10 minutes are almost up. Yes, please introduce yourself. Tell us where you're from. <laughs> and then... I can start and maybe you can continue. Um, I, I, th I think it's really interesting that uh, on, you're talking specifically about creative industries, right? Yeah. I remember you're the first person, Andrew, who told me about Festac, right? And how the, the Nigerian government, I think it was 1977, created an entire village which was the festival for African culture and brought in musicians from all over the world to speak about, you know, no, to actually perform and, and show the vitality of African culture, but beyond Africa. I mean, I spoke to Caetano Veloso in Brazil who actually performed there with Gilberto Gil, you know, because they connected as members of, you know, quote unquote, the Afro diaspora. And, and so, and Jane, I think James Brown went, and it was really amazing. And I remember in 2010, I actually worked on a project which um, was a bit complicated, but President Abdullah Wad tried to do the same thing with the Festman in Dakar in, in, in December 2010. It was very complicated as well. But again, you had musicians coming in from all over the world to kind of show you know, the vitality and the creativity of African culture in, in general. And those were government-sponsored initiatives, but it's always in the form of a festival or a live event, right? Mm -hmm. So maybe you're thinking of other tactics, and maybe you have some ideas. I'm thinking about the tactics. Yeah, maybe you, having worked directly in government and communications, Anne. Uh, this is hard, because I know, for example, when we were doing, I was working for the Ministry of Budget, and doing the budget for uh, the Ministry of Culture, the budget kept shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. Like, it wasn't a priority. Um, and I, I was always fighting. I'm like, and the minister was telling me, Nina, at least you know my struggle, you understand me because you are in this kind of world, so could you help me? But people just don't understand. What they understand in Africa, it's just, as she said, about finance, and doctor and lawyer. That's the only thing that they really respect. Um, a tactic to have that change? I don't know. They've been trying also. That we have few festivals, actually. There's the FESPACO, which is the, fest the festival of film in, in, uh, in, Bur in Burkina Faso. Mm -hmm. uh, there's another festival in Cote d'Ivoire that just happened. Um, I forgot the name. It's a group called Magic System that just created yeah. that. Yeah, that's where Papa Wamba died during yeah, that festival. Yeah, yeah, he died uh, there. But we've been trying to do certain things, but it just, it like, I guess the mentality, just like all the mentality has to change. Um, because these things are happening, but to your point about distribution yeah. and, and dissemination, yes. a lot of these events, nobody hears yeah, about them outside of... Yeah, the, the, the event we only heard about, like I knew about it because it's, been, it's a big deal, but outside of Cote d'Ivoire, we only heard about that because Papa Wemba died there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We yeah. have the Zanzibar Film Festival, and they've cut the budget for that. 
and so it's not happening anymore. Yeah, no, it's so just not a priority. There's just not government funds. No. So I guess more people see your film at Sundance than they do on the African. No, no, I mean, I, I think it all depends. I think uh, talking about your, the, the films we make, yes, the films we make here, you know, the so-called hotel films we make here, yes, maybe we don't have the distributed this, the outlet. Even films that are made about African-American societies are not even, 80% of them are not seen in the theaters. So I think, first of all, we have to control the distribution, you know? I actually think it would get better with, like in Nigeria now, they've got some like Iroko TV, which is kind of like a Netflix, you know? And I think once we have all those access and people can get it, um, more people will be able to see our films, you know? But talking about how to move forward, I think, for me, I think really it's about how do we start electing progressive leaders yeah. that understands that a society is only remembered through the culture they've created and the wars they've won, not the big houses they're building. So until we're able to do that, I think that's the way forward. How do we elect progressive leaders? There's that, but I think it's also changing the, uh, the perception of consumership in Africa. When I was living in Tanzania for three years, I always felt bad about buying bootleg DVDs <laughs> because the thing is, is that like a lot of major distributors just didn't think that there was a consumership, mm -hmm. like that a middle class African um, that would consume films, documentaries, whatever, and so. There was a lot of bootlegged DVDs. And what I found interesting is that after I left, then there was all of a sudden, like, Netflix was like, oh, we're expanding into Africa. Because all of a sudden, they saw an untapped market. And I think that that's, that's going to come. Um, I also saw a lot of artists and art like fellowships and all these things happening from donor communities. The British Council, um, you know, you had like all kinds of um, aid money going into like artist fellowships. And so I think that there's like something that's coming in terms of people recognizing the creative talent in the continent. Um, I, th I think I we, we have to stop here. Uh, but I think, you know, to answer your question, if we're going to really look at a solution, a lot of these responsible governments that we need to elect in Africa, I think one of their priorities has to be connectivity and the power of the internet so that they can unleash all this creativity and make it affordable for everyday citizens, right? Regular people should be able to afford, you know, the, the internet and data on, these, on their plans. And I think that once that is unleashed, I think there's gonna be a whole lot of new creative businesses that come out of Africa in the film world and, and otherwise. So I wanna, I wanna really take this time to thank you for coming, but really also mainly to thank our panelists, Elinisha Mosha, who's from Tanzania, Andrew Dosomnu from Nigeria, and Nina Keita from Cote d'Ivoire via Mali. So thank you very much, and I thought it was a great session.